You're listening to New Stories, Bold Legends, stories from Sydney Lunar Festival, a podcast about Australians who celebrate Lunar New Year. From artists to brain surgeons, fashion designers to board directors, and in this episode, journalists. I'm Valerie Koo, and I'm the City of Sydney's curator of the Sydney Lunar Festival. I'm also an artist, writer, and the CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre. In this series, we discover the personalities and passions of people who meld their cultural traditions with this sunburnt country they call home. In this episode, I'm talking to Kai Chow, a media consultant and freelance journalist. Kai has worked as a television and radio reporter and writer for Australia's top news organisations, including the ABC, Sky News, the Australian Financial Review and SBS. Kai was the first male Chinese-Australian news reporter and his consulting work includes media training, freelance writing, video producing and presenting. Kai Chow, thank you so much for joining me today. I'll say you're most welcome, but maybe I should see how the rest of this podcast goes first, eh, Val? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kai, can you just tell listeners who you are? Sure. Okay. So if I was at some networking event, um, <laughs> I'd say I'm a journalist, media consultant, and uh, hopefully one day a world-class podcaster. Awesome. You have a podcast in the works, I take it. It's, it's, it, look, it's fairly deeply in the works, but uh, hopefully we'll be emerging from the works at some point. Now tell me, what does Lunar New Year mean to you? Yeah, so Lunar New Year is, uh, you know, or, or, or I think even my parents are now using that rather than just Chinese New Year, which just mm. goes to show that just because, um, you know, they're uh, uh, of an advanced age doesn't mean they can't be uh, woke. Um, but, yes. Uh, <laughs> Basically, yeah, look, say Lunar New Year, you know, to me, probably like, you know, to many Chinese Australians means, um, you know, your a, a time of tradition. It's probably one of the few times of the year that I really do think um, a little bit more about my Chinese heritage than I normally would, at least when it's not being imposed on me by my parents telling stories about when I was a kid and how Chinese upbringing saved me from a life in jail. Okay, we'll unpack that a little bit more later. But you were born in Australia. Where did you grow up and what was life like growing up um, here? So I grew up in Campbelltown, which is in southwest of Sydney, and it's a, you know, I suppose you could say it's a fairly, uh, you know, blue-collar type of area. Um, I'm never quite sure whether we are actual Westies. That seems to be um, a a, a title bestowed only upon people from around that Parramatta, Bankstown (laughs) type of region, but I think that Campbelltown has more than enough cred to lay, uh, you know, to, you know, to, to say that they're part of that group as well. Um, So yeah, grew up out West. um, And uh, yeah, I was the only Chinese guy in my school. Well, no correction. My sister was there too. So that was two of us. I think there were some other kids there. I remember several years below us in primary school at, at St. John's in Campbelltown, and I could never quite work out whether they were Asian or not. I think at that stage <laughs> of my life, I hadn't come across many Eurasians. I think that's what they were, Val. Was it apparent to you that you were different or did it, was it a non, non-issue? So as far as I was concerned, I didn't feel or see myself any differently from any of the other uh, kids there at all. Um, the the only thing that 
I, I realised was a little bit different um, was the fact that I uh, tended to uh, be hyper-competitive when it came to schoolwork and I was one of those awful kids that would go, oh, what'd you get, what'd you get, what'd you get? Um, and, uh, uh, which sadly was a habit that continued to plague me uh, through high school, which uh, we'll come to later. Um, but look, it wasn't so much about how I felt. It was usually um, based on sometimes what other kids would say. Um, and uh, let's just say that most of the time, it unfortunately wasn't very complimentary stuff about um, being a the Chinese background. But yeah, is uh yes. Anyway, I'm sure you can unpack that if you'd like to. <laughs> did that did you let that affect you? Well, first of all, your parents are obviously ethnic Chinese and where did they migrate from? Sure. So my dad is from Shanghai in China, um, and my mum is from uh, Malaysia. Um, they're both ethnic Chinese, as uh, as you mentioned, and they came here though over fifty years ago. So, mm. in fact, more well more than fifty years ago. They basically came over when they were around, um, you know, end of high school, start of university age. Wow. Um, yeah. So uh, there, you know, it was very interesting because my dad somehow managed to sneak over here while the white Australia policy was in place. So it wasn't like there had been these floodgates that had been opened. He'd somehow managed to sneak in before that. So when you were at school and you had some uncomplimentary remarks, was this a frequent thing or not? It just didn't happen very often. And did it affect you at all? Yeah, uh, so it was reasonably frequent, I'd have to say, unfortunately. Um, on a daily basis, probably probably close to a daily basis but i'll tell you what i noticed about yeah yeah it was um it, it wasn't it, it wasn't great and the, and the funny thing is is that sometimes i'd get it from other students in my year at school um but then a lot of the other time we'd be fine. We'd just get along fine. It would only perhaps be, um, you know, if there'd been a particularly nasty fight or argument, uh, you know, maybe because I'd said, why'd you get too many times? Um, that, uh, yeah, like, and sometimes like some kind of uh, ethnic, um, you know, some kind of shot at Chinese would come up. But I got a lot of it, Val, uh, mm. from the boys in the year above me. And oh. what I always remembered from that was that, people who knew me were far less likely to be racist and to bully me uh, than those who did not know me. And I guess for them, I was just some weird, different-looking kid whose parents or, you know, other environment had told them um, was uh, not very desirable. So kids can be ignorant and, you know, as they grow up, they become more aware of, of life. Did this decrease, did this decrease as you got older? Yeah, definitely. Um, and probably that was a sign of both, um, Australia's changing attitudes on this, I think. Um, but also, you know, the fact that um, I, I also changed worlds a bit. So, you know, I, I went to school um, in Campbelltown in primary school, but in high yeah. school, I went to school in the city um, yeah. at a private school, which is where, you know, obviously one of those holy grails for <laughs> Asian parents. And, and I'm, I'm eternally thankful to my parents for setting me because I, I did enjoy my school. Now, I can tell you I did get a little bit, but very rare, um, racism uh, when I was in high school. And so that year, and, and look, part of that was because there were quite a few other Asians in my year at school. And I think <laughs> like maybe about a third, I think nowadays the school's probably 
edging up to, well, a significant majority are Asian there now. Um, so I think that obviously made a difference as well, just a different world, students, kids, boys specifically from, um, you know, different parts of Australia that were perhaps a bit more used to seeing Chinese and realised that we, you know, weren't bad. <laughs> and so you you sort of um, co-founded a group called Media Diversity. Um, can you tell me a bit about that and what the point of that group is? Yeah, sure, Val. So, look, I, I want to stress, I'm not one of the founders per se. Mm -hmm. That's uh, that that is, um, you know, Antoinette Latouf and Isabel Lowe, and okay. they started this organisation. And I was one of the founding members of the committee. Um, and mm -hmm. so they approached me and they said, "Look, I, we want to be able to promote more cultural diversity in the media." And initially, I was a little bit apprehensive. You know, I've always come from that migrant background that I think most Chinese are from, which is don't complain, find a way to succeed, <laughs> because the more time you spend on finding a way to succeed rather than complaining, the better you'll do. And I yeah. think that that has acquitted the Chinese very well in every country um, where they've been part of the, di you know, where they've been um, a diaspora. So mm -hmm. whether it's Indonesia or Malaysia, where, where I've spent a quite a bit of time, or America, um, the Chinese have always been, um, you know, how do I put this, often not well-treated, right? Uh, they often face huge disadvantages, for example, in their ability to speak the language, uh, but they are very pragmatic. In all of those, they just find a way. Now, yeah, I'm not saying... Exactly, exactly. And look, you know, I'm not saying that we should not make an effort to reduce prejudice and so forth against Chinese. I, I mean, you know, I think that's part of the equation, but I do think there's far too much emphasis placed on what other people need to do um, so that Asians can succeed rather than what we've always been good at, which is Asians finding a way to make ourselves succeed. So, look, I was initially a little bit unsure about whether I wanted to be part of a group. Um, however, I was reassured, <laughs> you know, look, uh, look, Kai, we promise this isn't just like another ABC, SBS um, club, you know, of lefty progressive, you know, activists, <laughs> right? Um, in fact, they said, look, we actually really value the fact you come from a more uh, conservative um, and different viewpoint. Um, and so that's why I'm, I'm part of that organisation because I do believe that, diversity is important in Australian media and not just based on the colour of your skin but the perspectives um, that you bring as well. So, for example, often, um, you know, there are Asian Asians uh, or, or people from non-English-speaking non, uh, backgrounds who are elevated by the media but only because they either uh, meet a stereotype about how, you know, about certain bad things about Asians or uh, because they happen to have the exact same opinions as uh, all of the, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, inner city uh, white uh, left-leaning um, people who are already there. So they feel very comfortable. They say, oh, this is easy. The difference, you know, different skin colour and hair colour and they tick the diversity box. So that'll get the, that'll get some of those people off our backs. Um, but, uh, and, but hey, they, so they, they have the exact same views as me on everything. This is awesome, you know. So, and I do think there is a little bit of that, uh, not just in, um, well, well, I think particularly uh, in media and, mm. you know, hopefully not too much in the corporate world uh, where, you know, I sometimes do worry we only look at diversity from a very skin-deep um, standpoint rather than what it really should be about, which is having different perspectives and realising that different perspectives are often things that you're going to maybe be a little bit uncomfortable with. But that's what pluralism is and that's what coexisting uh, requires, not just hiring only the people who sort of 
you know, who sort of look a bit different but agree with you on everything, but living with actual difference. And I think that's so important in today's world, um, you know, in this increasingly polarised um, and outrage-driven world. So what does the group actually do to uh, foster media diversity? Yeah, sure. So a, a few things. So I know, uh, for example, uh, research is something uh, that we're slowly working on. It's quite challenging. And that's basically just to look at um, the cultural, um, ethnic, you know, uh, breakdown of people who work in the media. So, so to, first of all, just to see, like, you know, uh, to actually see how um, representative the media is in terms of cultural backgrounds compared to the general population or, or you know, well, look, you know, once we do the, once we get the numbers, we'll be able to hopefully make some meaningful comparisons, um, you know, and those can be read however, um, you know, I'm sure people will have different reads on those. Um, but we certainly are basically focused on uh, a lot of practical stuff. Um, so networking events, all the things that help you help anyone elevate in a media career. So networking, building contacts, um, and hopefully you know, uh, soon, I'm hoping to launch a mentoring program, I'm actually learning skills, right? I mean, it's it's one thing that just, mm. I, I do think there's a, 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 you know, there's there's some impetus on the, uh, I mean, there's some, imper- you know, there's, there's some importance for an organisation to be more open-minded about the type of people it helps. But if we, as uh, people of a non-white background, want to succeed, then, you know, we've got to make sure that, um, you know, we, uh, you know, can have, have the absolute best skills and background necessary that can help us get those roles. So working on that practical stuff certainly is my focus uh, on the committee. And we have done other things. You know, we've developed a Indigenous reporting handbook, for example, that I know has been quite widely distributed amongst newsrooms. And all that is is just helping journalists who say, look, you know, I want to be able to report on an Indigenous issue. Um, I don't want to botch it by making certain assumptions or getting things wrong or using the wrong terms and so forth. Um, And so we've just tried to make a a brief guide, you know, so that, that, you know, I know that's been a lot of work. So, you know, again, trying to do more practical things. I mean, if all we were was a call out, let's just call this person racist because they said something, you know, that some people got offended by, um, then I wouldn't be part of the organisation. But we really are focused on things that sometimes may take a while. Networking and so forth, this is not going to get you quick wins compared to imposing a quota or, you know, basically elevating people rather obviously, you know, in a token way. Yeah. Did you have any parental expectations on what you should do at university or, or any particular career that you should pursue? So you did hear that bit at the start, right, Val, where I said that my parents were ethnic Chinese. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, look, <laughs> and I should stress that I am aware, I have heard of the cool Asian parents um, back then <laughs> who just let their kids do whatever they want. I have heard the stories. I am familiar with the legends, okay? Um, However, (laughs) that was not what I had. (laughs) You know, I I had, yes, I had, I guess, what you would call the classic Asian uh, tiger mother who I love dearly, uh, still to this day. And quite frankly, I'm probably going to be bringing a bit of that Asian, you know, tigerness. uh, My parenting, uh, when that hopefully happens. Now, um, as far as my um, expectations, as far as the expectations on me were, look, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, look, I wasn't forced. I've heard some real horror stories about Mm. students who 
forcibly made build who would for, fill in an application to a school of medicine and basically force their child to sign it right so the parents <laughs> would fill it in and then just make the child sign so it was not like that for me so i did think i was going to be a doctor but that was just simply because my dad's a doctor and i think it's just most kids natural instinct to say oh i'm just going to do whatever my father or mother did right sure yeah. um and and you know and 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 really that was a, a good chance and and like you know I was you know I was really encouraged towards that and that was probably quite a good chance all the way through high school. Um, in fact, um, you know I went to a school that was very good at maths, um, Sydney Grammar, and I managed to somehow get into the A class for maths, which is. I don't know. How do I put this? It's sort of like the Australian high school call equivalent of getting into Harvard for an Asian parent, right? <laughs> yeah. When you can get into the A class at Sydney Grammar and Mass. Uh, however, unfortunately, in year 11 and 12, an actual understanding of mathematics became necessary uh, and my marks took a rapid turn for the worse. Um, and that was around the time I realised that maybe medicine wasn't going to be for me because I was also quite dismal at science. I, I did have a shot in year 11 of trying two units of chemistry um, and then, you know, realised that it was just a bit of a facade despite all of the tutoring my parents were giving me. I just was struggling to understand this stuff and I think, you know, when when I dropped two unit chemistry, so did any fantasy about um, becoming a doctor, which quite frankly was never a particular strong fantasy. I actually ended up writing. I did so many humanities, I ended up doing 17 essays for the HSC and that was really my clue that the humanities were much more... Uh, appealing as a future career for me. Um, however, um, I chose to uh, ignore that um, in my first year of university and do a major in accounting um, <laughs> because, look, and, and again, I want to stress, like it wasn't like my parents forced me to major yeah. in accounting. And I had, I said, oh, what about marketing or management? And, I, you know, I think my parents subtly made it known, hey, if you do marketing or management, that's all you can do. Whereas if you do accounting, you could still do marketing or management, but it opens the door for you to do a whole lot of other stuff as well. And because I didn't really have a strong sense of purpose or an idea of what I wanted to do with my life, as as I, you know, thankfully do now, um, then um, I just said, yeah, okay. And I looked around, all of my other friends in first year, they all seem to be doing, you know, an accounting major. And I thought, Okay, sure. Why not? Um, so I majored in accounting and law, um, and <laughs> uh, that was my university life. Yes, <laughs> it sounds like we've lived parallel lives or something because um, that's pretty much what happened to me. And I ended up dropping chemistry and then doing your humanities, and in th- thinking, oh, I should do something in the humanities, but enrolling in accounting. Of course, it makes so much sense, <laughs> right? So, what happened? Did you become an accountant? If you can just give us uh, a potted career yeah, history. Sure, sure. Um, so uh, technically I became an accountant, I guess. I was employed by KPMG. I worked in tax there. And honestly, I was not the world's greatest tax accountant. In fact, I'm pretty sure I was probably around the lower ranks um, of that profession. I, I, I'd i spent a lot of time organising social events with the other grads, though. Well, I awesome. was very good at that. <laughs> Did you make a switch after that? I did. I did. I had a 
friend who was of Indian background and had followed a very similar career path. We'd gone to high school together. We're still very close friends to this day. And he said, hey, Kai, I'm working at ComSec now and I'm in this thing called product management um, and where you can sort of come in on, say, your accounting or legal background and maybe internally transfer to marketing. And marketing was something that I had done subjects in at university as part of an exchange program. And I'd loved it. I absolutely loved it. And so I said, yeah, sure. Um, and so that's what I did. I transitioned, I transitioned into marketing at Comsec. And by transitioned, I should be clear, I didn't really do marketing. I basically uh, was Comsec's spam king. Val. So <laughs> basically it was my job. I didn't get to write all the creative or the, you know, all of that kind of fun marketing stuff or, or, or more precisely the stuff that I wanted to do. Um, I basically was told, okay, here's the copy. Just blast our members with it, will you? Um, and wow. So that's, that, that was sort of me. So I spent a lot of time going through unsubscribe requests uh, some more civil than others, I should add. Apparently <laughs> people don't like getting emails they didn't ask for. Go figure. Um, and, uh, yeah, but, you know, look, that time, though, Val, I mean, it was very insightful. I, I learned a lot about the finance world and when I would become a business journalist later on, it became very useful. Um, but basically, I left ComSec. I went to Macquarie Bank uh, where I worked in actual marketing communications. Um, and I was only really there for about a year because, while I loved marketing, I realised that something I was perhaps not so flash at was getting 14 different sign-offs for a brochure, um, <laughs> kind of corralling different people. And, you know, I found that um, very challenging and not what I expected. And, I, you know, I've got the greatest of respect for people who have to do that kind of uh, work. Um, but basically, I ended up leaving after about a year um, and I took half a year up to go travelling around the world, as you do. Um, and, uh, and then when I came back, I became a journalist. So you moved into journalism. Tell me why uh, you were attracted to journalism and what your family thought of that career change because it's not that usual for um, Asian families to have, you know, um, their, their kids go into journalism. It is a little yeah. bit more um, common yeah, now. Yeah, sure. But, yeah, and, and, you know, your various journalism roles since. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, so I, uh, nothing attracted me to journalism, Val. Um, okay. I, my impression of journalism was that it was um, sensationalism. Um, it was bias. Um, and uh, frankly, I wanted nothing to do with it. Um, that was my impression of journalism. Um, now, what I did have was an interest in doing media, in working in media, somehow doing presenting, because at I remember at university, I was always the one that did the presentations and quite happily, while the rest of my group and the group work uh, would just run a mile um, and be quite happy, we'd, we'd sort of do this quid pro quo where uh, they would, um, how do I put this, assist me heavily uh, with the written and substantive components of the assignment and I would do the presentation at the end, which I loved right? Um, so, I'd always had an interest in that sort of presenting uh, type of field. And so, what happened was is that I had a friend who worked in journalism. And when I say a friend, I mean, that's it. I knew one person. Everyone else I knew was an accountant, an engineer, a doctor, a lawyer. So, in other words, I knew a lot of Asians. Um, and even the <laughs> non-Asians I knew had obviously done my course at university, 
mainly. And so, you know, they were pretty much all lawyers as well. Um, I didn't know any journalists. And so that world I'd, I'd never really known that much about or considered. And so perhaps I did have some misconceptions about what a journalist is or was. Um, now, to be clear, I think that journalists in some ways, are, you know, sometimes are deserving of those criticisms, right? Um, however, I found by my second day doing an unpaid internship, um, my second day, uh, Val, I loved it. I always had a bit of an interest in politics and current affairs um, in, during high school. Uh, in fact, my first article for the school newspaper, the Tiger magazine, um, was called, uh, it, uh, it was basically about political correctness, which in the mid-90s was only just starting to become a thing. And I somehow wrote an article on it, um, and I remembered. So Tiger Magazine was run by, you know, all of the the, the very humanities-oriented um, guys at Sydney Grammar. In fact, um, mm. a lot of them have gone on to become members of The Chaser, like Charles Firth and Chasley Chiodello and Dominic mm. Knight. Um, and, uh, yeah, and somehow I managed to sneak that article in there. And um, and so I'd always had that interest. And working at SBS, um, do, I, I remembered, like, my second day I was interviewing uh, the federal attorney general at the time about immigration at the time, and mm. and I found it fascinating, and I and and I think it really tapped the fact that I had you know it, it tapped into something that I'd always wanted to make a difference um, in the world. Well, not always, but um, in my later years, um, you know, midway through university when I started doing work for a student organisation, um, I realised that I really loved that sense of helping people. You know, I don't know how much I actually did help people, but I love the sense of it. Um, and journalism was a way I could I could do that. You know, the world, um, you know, I was fascinated by those issues. Um, and it also, because I was in radio um, and then eventually I would move to television, um, you know, enabled me to do that presenting side of things, you know, rather than some of my more ill-fated attempts. Like I remembered going to this mass audition at a Westfield once for an MTV role, even though I didn't watch MTV and I knew pretty much zero about pop music. Um, so, uh, you know, but uh, yeah, this, this, this route was a little bit more fruitful. So you started at SBS and then went to, so where are the media organisations that you worked at? Yeah, sure. So first SBS Radio, um, and then while I was there, I remembered seeing um, there was a TV that we always had on our desks, and they had Sky News on it. And I didn't know anything about Sky News because um, I didn't have Foxtel, but I thought, oh, they look okay. Um, so I cold-called them, and I was very blessed. I picked up the like you know I, I I picked up the phone and I said, oh, who do I speak to about a job there? And she said, <laughs> one moment, <clears throat> and then the girl put me through to. Um, the news director at the time, Ian Cook, a lovely, lovely man who, you know, sadly is no longer with us, but a wonderful old, uh, an older journalist and, you know, former, uh, you know, former news director at Channel 9 and, and, and a whole bunch of other networks, actually. And he said, oh, look, I see you've got a bit of a digital, um, digital marketing background. We're starting to move a little bit more into digital and writing. So why don't you come along and give it a go? So he gave me a go. And within about a week or two, they said, okay, we're prepared to, you know, offer you an actual job. And, wow. and so, yeah, I know. I was, I was pretty stoked. I was, I was not so stoked about the salary, which let's just say was a little bit less than what you make at Macquarie Bank. Um, <laughs> but, but nevertheless, like I, um, you know, was, you know, I, I, I was in the news business. And when the Sky News Business Channel launched maybe a few months after that, uh, they approached me and said, would you like to give it a go? And, 
look, you know, up to that point, I was in the digital team. And, and at yeah. that stage, it was a fairly mechanical type of role, probably not dissimilar to the mechanical nature of my Comsec spam king days. And so I said, sure. Um, you know, um, I, at first I thought I didn't want to move into business. Um, because I thought, no, I want to do these controversial issues that I've always been interested in. Um, but, you know, I was keen to try something on air and they offered me a reporter position and, um, and yeah, and, and I, I basically uh, ran with that for about five years interviewing people. Um, Not bad for a cold call, I have to say. <laughs> I know That's I was very amazing. lucky. I understand you're the first... Chinese guy in Australian TV news. Is that correct? Did you get much <laughs> reaction or feedback to that or, or was it was life go on as normal? Uh, so uh, you mean me putting that on my Twitter profile? <laughs> or, <laughs> well, um, whatever. Or, or the Just... fact that I was doing it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So um, let, let's put it this way. I had to narrow it down because I knew that there'd been um, Asian uh, there'd been Asian TV reporters before me, or, or certainly Eurasian uh, reporters like Anna Choi on, I, I think it used to be called Beyond 2000 and then eventually Beyond Tomorrow. Um, mm -hmm. And so, um, and, and Karen Cho, uh, you know, the, uh, you, you know, the Eurasian reporter on Channel 9 who now is at CNBC, I believe. Um, and, um, you know, so I had to be particular about this great first that I was claiming. But I'm pretty confident of that one, Val. No one has ever really been able to dispute it. I looked across at SBS. Their male reporters were, um, like, I mean, Oscar Subati is Indonesian background, I believe. So, you know, that's him out. Didn't have to worry about him. Um, and uh, quite frankly, like, I wasn't aware of any other Asian reporters, um, certainly not in broadcast, television or radio, and um, yet to be proven to this day. You know, maybe some, I mean, if somehow I have missed uh, some mysterious, uh, you know, Chinese male reporter, uh, then I'm happy to retract that uh, who came before me. But uh, as yet, uh, and, and to be frank, there haven't been a whole ton of them since uh, <laughs> since I yes. started either. I think there's some guy who works at the ABC in uh, in the Northern Territory I remember seeing a few years ago and, and young David Chow who works at the ABC now and he and I joke uh, because he and I are often uh, mistaken for each other in the, mm. in the predominantly Caucasian newsroom there. But anyway, there you go. That's, uh, that, that's, that was my sense of my title. Um, in terms of the response to it, look, mm. you know, Sky News, uh, I, I never once felt um, that being Chinese was some kind of disadvantage. At least not more than, I mean, how do I put this? You know, in commercial television, I think that, um, you know, there are certain things that will place you at an advantage. Um, so, for example, being, um, you know, um, I mean, look, you have to know your stuff there, especially in the political area where you've got people like David Spears, Kieran Girl, but these people are, <clears throat> you, know, you know, I think, um, amongst Australia's greatest political reporters, um, mm -hmm. and and I had so much respect for them, right? Um, but you know, it also was fairly clear, for example, that being very attractive uh, <laughs> uh, would certainly helped. Um, you know, in a, on commercial in a, TV, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 also, um, I couldn't help notice, um, you know, having the right connections, right? And I was someone who cold called in and so I didn't know anyone there and when I say the right connections I just mean you know probably like many jobs right Val I mean you know a referral always carries a bit more weight and I think that's certainly the case in media um so I never felt though that being actually Chinese itself was an issue um I, I never got any 
taunts. I mean, I do hear stories from some reporters about snide remarks they get, but I never got that at Sky. And Sky was a place which, considering its stereotype as, oh, look, they're all just, you know, blonde female presenters and old and, you know, older guys, you know, at the latter stages of their career, right? I mean, I, I you know, despite that, I mean, compared to other networks um, that I was to experience during my career, I felt that Sky gave me more opportunities than anyone else. And I know after I was there, I was succeeded by an Indian um, Australian reporter um, on the business channel, right? And we had massive on-air time. You know, we weren't just buried in the back of somewhere, you know, and look, you know, I'm not putting down people who are behind the camera, but, you know, the stereotype is, oh, well, you know, we don't want to put people on screen who look different but that was never an issue for me at sky as i found and 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 everyone like i ever encountered whether they were the people i interviewed uh whether the people who watched the show would occasionally come up to me every now and then to the delight of my parents if they happened to be with me at the time um you know they 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 never really raised it as a as a as a down as a bad thing if anything it was always described as a good thing uh, what did your parents think of your uh, move into journalism in the media? Yeah, well, well you know, as I mentioned, uh, once I'd started doing well, they, they were all for it. I mean, <laughs> <you know, laughs> until then, they were understandably a bit apprehensive because I think we all, many migrant children know that their parents struggle damn hard to get us here and to build a life for us. And their resistance to us taking on um, more unstable careers like journalism or media or communications is only because they love us. And they want us to not, they want us to do well and to not have to struggle like they did. And I don't think that that is appreciated enough. Um, And even though I resisted it and argued and all sorts of stuff uh, back when I was younger, I think that those traditions, uh, I think it's really important for, for, for those to be passed on, and I'm glad they passed those on. Um, so, yeah, they were initially apprehensive. In fact, I remembered even, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, a few years into my uh, media career, I think when I was leaving one organisation or I talked about how hard it was, my mother said, uh, you know, you could always go back to accounting, <laughs> right? <laughs> I said, Mum, that was 10 years ago. Oh, no. <laughs> So what happened after Sky? So after I, so after Sky, um, or while I was at Sky, I'd been there quite a few years, um, and I was approached by Fairfax, um, and the Financial Review approached me and said, "Look, uh, we want to be able to start introducing video um, to our website, or we already do, but you know, we'd really like to push into it a bit more." Um, so I joined the Financial Review um, as their associate editor for multimedia. Um, And so my job was to eventually, um, I would build it up, um, was to manage a a small team um, of media producers and journalists um, to basically make the videos um, that get shoved into (laughs) financial review articles. Um, And that was amazing because, you know, I'd come from Sky, which is a traditional terrestrial broadcaster. So in other words, the ones you watch on normal television, so to speak, or Freeview, as some call it, um, or, or, uh, you know, as as some may know of it, rather. Um, um, But this was my introduction to do things in digital form. 
So that was great because that tapped into something that I'd loved when I was in marketing, Val, which was that desire to make a difference to people. See, when you're a television reporter, often you don't know whether you're doing well or not. You tend not to get a lot of feedback on the job. You don't know much about the ratings. And even if you do know the ratings, it's hard to know how much you were responsible or how much your stories were responsible. Mm. But when you work in digital and when the digital revolution came to Fairfax, um, I couldn't wait. Like we, I, I, I was someone that who took it my you know took it upon myself uh, to take a huge interest in the statistics and metrics we were getting um, about you know what did well and what didn't do well and then I would use that to shape mm. the kind of content that we made like not in a not in a way that ever denigrated the brand I believe but just in a way that made it easier yeah. for people to receive and I and I really loved that and I realized look you know this is great now I actually have an idea of what's working and I'm getting that feeling again that I had back at university when people would come up to me and say, hey, thanks for organising that career seminar. And I realised it was that same feeling I was getting again. So I learned a lot about digital journalism from Fairfax. And so then life after Fairfax? Yeah, uh, I worked at the ABC. So not long after I left. Um, so after I left Fairfax and I decided that I wanted to try a whole lot of different things, which I still am, um, but I was approached by the ABC and I worked for uh, the Radio National Breakfast Program with Fran Kelly, had a wonderful experience there. In fact, I still, you know, um, do shifts there from time to time as a fill-in business reporter. And that was great because I still believe and. I know that the ABC gets uh, a lot of criticism from some quarters for for you know for a range of reasons, but in particular, you know, because they're biased, supposedly biased, and and so forth. And and, and to be frank, I, I I can't disagree with some of the criticisms of the ABC around things like that and the lack of diversity there. Um, but there's no doubt you learn best practice, and there's no doubt there are many really good, kind, generous uh, reporters, especially the older, uh, more, you know, very professional ones who still see journalism as something where you let people make up their own minds and, and you present both sides of an issue. So I learned a tremendous amount at the ABC there. I worked a little bit in ABC TV and producing. Um, and then um, I also worked for the PM radio program uh, that Mark Colvin uh, used to host, uh, Mark Colvin being a, uh, a famous Australian mm. journalist. And, and I loved that as well because that's uh, where I moved out of business journalism specifically and started to cover uh, more general news and current affairs. Um, so, yeah, look, you know, most of that was casual work, um, but, you know, I, I, I absolutely loved it and I learned a tremendous amount from it. So, you know, between the ABC, Fairfax and Sky, I've, I've really been very fortunate to work across a lot of different, you know, with a lot of different people in a lot of different ways, a lot of different yeah. styles. You've had a pretty uh, fascinating career trajectory. What does Kai do on a personal <laughs> level? Like, what do you do to relax and hang out? And what are your hobbies or passions or interests outside of yeah, your career? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, well, you know, I'm I'm Asian, so eating is definitely in there. Um, and <laughs> and dead set, I'm I'm trying to think if I've ever met a single Asian in my entire life where they just said, eh, you know, when it came to food, but I, I can't. So that's why I don't want to <laughs> dwell too much on that because every Asian, almost every Asian rather, um, is fascinated by food. Yes. Um, you know, and we know it's because mm -hmm. of, you know, that cultural background where food has always been a big deal in Asian culture because often those cultures 
did not have food. Um, and so, you know, spoiling people with way too much food, which is something I've experienced when I visited, um, you know, for example, my future in-laws and also my relatives, um, you know, overseas, um, you know, that's that's part of the culture. So I love food. I love eating out. It is a little uh, expensive sometimes. So I've curtailed that a little bit, especially as uh, married life awaits. Um, and, um, you know, but, um, you know, so so I, I love food. I And I love cycling and you know i i are you a I mammal, have a mammal. Are you, are you, a you know about now that i've turned 40 <laughs> i i i'm pretty sure that officially you know first i was going oh well i do wear the lycra but you know i'm not middle oh, hang on now i am um so yeah look i never would have believed that i would be getting up at 5 a.m to go cycling you know to pull on a bunch of you know, to basically pull on a leotard and go cycling around the, you know, <laughs> the eastern suburbs, right? You know, so, um, you know, so I love that and I love podcasts. As I mentioned, I'm a wannabe podcaster um, and I love hearing these nuanced conversations. I think especially after, Val, living a career in journalism where in the latter years we were told mm-hmm. no one has an attention span more than eight seconds anymore. You know, a goldfish is more likely to read your entire column than than anyone else, right? Um, but I actually believe, and I, I truly believe, looking at the rise of Netflix, for example, which has much longer um, storylines and character yeah. arcs, um, that people do have a deep-seated desire for something more nuanced. Sure, we still want a bit of eye candy and I, I like a good meme as much as, much as the next person, right? Um, and, and I love Instagram too. Um, but um, I think that we all do have this deep-seated need. And rather than, look, you know, journalists would always say, oh, people always want this, but they had no proof to back it up, right? But the success of podcasts, mm. you know, podcasts like Joe Rogan's, which can go for three hours and which once upon a time I thought there is yeah. no way I am going to listen to any episode that's three hours until I realise, hey, you know, it's just like reading a book. I don't have to sit down and for three hours and listen to it. I just dip in and out of it. And so I love podcasts mm. around these political um, charged issues, I think, that confront us. And I especially love those that are able to consider um, different viewpoints and treat each other with a bit of respect, entertainment, but respect. To keep up with um, when Kai finally releases his <laughs> podcast, then uh, go to Kai's website at kaichow.com. So, but finally, Kai, with the Lunar New Year for 2019, what are you looking forward to the most? Oh, okay. I know this is going to sound a little bit negative, but can I start with the things I'm probably not looking forward to so much? Um, if you oh, want to. <laughs> this is going to get me in so much trouble. Okay, so I will definitely be spending uh, Chinese New Year's Eve uh, or Lunar New Year's Eve, definitely, you know, you always spend that with the family. I think that's really important. It's one of the few really um old chinese traditions that i you know i i do observe you know because i'm you know i'm 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 catholic and so i tend to observe christmas and and a lot of the western traditions more than that but lunar new year that is something i think it is important um, for um people to get together um and so that involves a lot of eating it also involves lion dancing now i love talking and you know when it's really really hard to talk I found two things in my life that bring that to an abrupt halt. 
One, going to a nightclub. I never gone into the nightclub thing at uni, never understood the appeal. I don't drink. I don't, I'm a terrible dancer. I, I was just thinking, what the hell am I doing here? I'd be with my friends in the nightclub thinking, what am I doing here? You know, and so clubs, uh, you know, that would probably be uh, one conversation killer. And the other are those drums that come with the lion dancing, right? I, and they start up and I thought, here we go. We're just going to just be staring at each other for the next half an hour while these guys do their thing. And I know, and it's an important Chinese tradition, Val, and I get it and I sort of appreciate it and I will probably take an Instagram photo when the lion comes across to, you know, grab the, you know, the the, the, the money off us. Um, yeah, well, you know, hey, look, you know, it's a local kung fu club, you know, they, they never make that much money. So, you know, they, they, they you know, you, you're going to support the, these guys. I get that. Uh, but that's pro- those are probably one of my less lesser loved parts of Chinese New Year. And sadly, I would probably also say the mooncake. Uh, just too sweet these days. I mean, seriously, this I one's going to come up with a... So, someone needs to come up with a lower, you know, a low sugar version of these things, and I'm going to you know, be yep. wolfing those suckers down, you know? Um, but, you know, I do love getting together with family, and I do love the way the city is decked out with Chinese New Year or Lunar New Year decorations. Yeah. I think that that is important. I absolutely think it's important. I mean, Chinese are the largest non-white um, ethnic group in this country, and often we might be invisible to many people outside stories about, you know, the property market and, um, you know, another less than positive uh, contexts, right? And so I think it's wonderful, um, you know, to have something visible like that uh, in the city. So I absolutely um, look forward to seeing the city uh, decked out like that, and I hope that continues for a long time to come. And on that note, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Val. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Kai Chow. Kai mentions the tradition of lion dancing. If you're not familiar with lion dancing, you'll certainly see it many times in Chinatown during Lunar New Year, but also throughout the city and in many Chinese restaurants. It's a fun tradition, and as Kai mentions, it's a somewhat noisy one. Dancers wear the lion costume usually with one person in the head or the front of the lion and the other as the body or the back of the lion. Traditionally, lion dancing is done on special occasions and there is no more auspicious occasion than Lunar New Year. Like many rituals associated with Lunar New Year, it's performed to bring luck and prosperity for the upcoming year. It's usually a very energetic dance and done to drums and cymbals and gongs and lots of noise. If it's happening somewhere around you, you won't be able to miss it. And don't miss it because it's quite a spectacle. Thanks for listening to New Stories, Bold Legends, stories from Sydney Lunar Festival. My name's Valerie Koo and you can connect with me at ValerieKoo, that's K-H-O-O dot com. To find out more about the City of Sydney's Sydney Lunar Festival, go to sydneylunarfestival.com. Or to find out more about the people featured in this podcast and any of the links I've mentioned, go to newstories.net.au.